And now we're going to open up the book of Nehemiah together. Nehemiah, and we're looking at chapters 2 and 3 today. While you're turning there or clicking there, just to make you aware of a few things coming in the life of the church, next Sunday... After church, we are going to have a, uh, some teaching and discussion on uh, basically the sermon that we missed while uh, Pastor Travis and I had COVID, and that is uh, the Bible, ethnicity, and the beauties of Jesus. And so our aim um, next week will just be to have a helpful discussion with the Bible as our anchor and the glory of God as our goal about these issues of ethnicity in the scripture. So looking so forward to that, it'll be after the service. I'm going to send out an email um, early next, uh, early, I guess this week, this first day of the week, right? Early this week um, in order to try to get some RSVP because those who are here in person, we will eat together and then we will have that discussion. That discussion will also be um, led um, by myself, but also uh, Ron Jorlach and uh, Josh Gallagher. So we'll be able to be... uh, teaming up with that together, and I'm looking forward to that discussion. We will do it uh, virtually as well, so those of you who are online, um, just make it a point to be a part of that, and I'll send you all that info this week. Also, the following week, so that's next Sunday, March the 7th, the following Sunday, March 14th, our aim is to do an outdoor service. Um, We've got a lot of people that are willing to come if we are able to kind of Get outdoors, and I think we just need um, to be reminded of how crucial it is to gather together and to be together as a people of God. And for those of you who are online, I just want to say out loud how encouraged I am by the growing numbers in this room. And it is uh, just an answer to prayer. Deeply thankful for how God is at work. So what I want to do, let's read Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18, but we will be looking at Nehemiah 2. Uh, and chapters 2 and 3 in their totality. The word of God says this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or shame. And I told them, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up, let's build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be about your good work. But we want to be about that good work because you've first done all the work in our place. You did what we could not do. We don't focus on doing for you. We focus on what has been done by you. The work is finished on the cross. You have come and you have died in our place and you have been raised. You raised your son from the dead and he is everything that we will ever need. He satisfies all longings. And so, Father, it's out of that verdict by faith alone, that we are yours, we are your children, if we trust in you and that finished work that fuels us to build one another up, to love one another and to love our city and the nations. Come, humble us, work within us, I pray. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today we're going to continue in our series entitled New Beginnings Together, the book of Nehemiah. New Beginnings Together. And I wanted to make sure that something was clear. You you don't just declare a new beginning because you want to. (laughs) It's not like, okay, new beginnings, let's do this. Yes. It's like you're assessing what God has done And you're asking for eyes to see where he is at work, and then you're pleading with him to strengthen you to get on board with what he is doing. When we are sitting here talking about new beginnings together, it's not some creative slogan and it's not some self-willed program. This is about assessing where we are as a church about assessing where we have been in the history of the world, especially our little history when it comes to the pandemic, and what God might want to do to do a new beginning work 
in and through us. And so the prayer here is that God would grant us eyes to see what he is doing in the face of our trials and in the face of our sadness, and he might grant us the humility and the courage and the God-soaked, prayer-centric life that says, Father, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. And that's not just an individual prayer, it's a corporate prayer. Whatever you want us to do as a church, we want to do that. So like Nehemiah, over the past year or so, and for some of us, even longer, we've experienced some bad news. Some bad news that are meant to cause us to reassess our lives in light of God and his purposes for us. But we're seeing some rays, some rays, some rays of maybe normalcy that could be coming out of the clouds of COVID. Seeing some rays of potential hope that could be coming out of personal loss or corporate loss. And now as we look ahead, and we're on the brink potentially as a church of even relocating ourselves, we now ask God to make it plain, to make it plain what it looks like together, together to follow this new beginning. But it's not just physically in some possible relocation. This new beginning is about joining him in a spiritual endeavor, to be the people of God. Something interesting about new beginnings. In the scriptures, new beginnings many times have two characteristics. The first characteristic of a new beginning is that it comes out of ashes. You heard the passage, he gives beauty for ashes and strength for fear. It's many times out of ashes and not out of greatness that God does new beginnings. It's usually out of weakness and not strength that you see the spring season of God's grace begin to come out. God does a new thing out of a humble place, not usually the place of glory. So, church, do you feel at times a sense of lowness or weariness or exhaustion? Today is meant to be a message of hope. No matter what we have been through, the command, the encouragement from the scriptures is that the exile does not get the last word. God is a God of restoration. Now here in Nehemiah, it was out of the ashes of what we called last week the setting of shame. Looking around at the city of Jerusalem, hearing the report from Hananiah, and seeing the fact that the walls were crumbled, the city was in ruins, the people felt Great trouble and shame. But it was out of that, out of that news where God was going to do a restoration work. And you know why? Because he told us he was going to do one. In Isaiah chapter 43, God talks about the new restoration work that he's going to do. And he talks about how even though the people had sinned and they had been taken away to captivity by the Babylonians, he says in Isaiah 43 that the Babylonians were then going to be taken captive way before it ever happened, and it happened, by King Cyrus of Persia. But then he promises that a restoration is coming. A restoration is coming. And hear these verses, Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you perceive it? Don't you see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The point of this passage is to help us understand what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. These are the growing seeds of this restoration moment. When the people who were in exile have now been brought back to their city and God is doing a new thing in their city through Nehemiah's work. Where there seems no path forward, God can make a clear path. Where there seems no water in the desert, God can make water come. 
So the first thing about new beginnings is that it comes out of ashes. But the second thing is that it is meant to make us have renewed priorities. Renewed priorities. We are meant to make God's priorities our priorities. And that's what all last week's sermon was about. What are the renewed priorities, the the new focus that God wants us to have as we move forward as individuals out of 2020 into 2021, but as we move forward as a church together? Well, it's not about doing new things. It's about focusing on what is most important and uniting around those things together. It is about not new things, but focusing in on some of these old things that we know are in the scriptures, things that are most important and uniting around those things together. So as we look at Nehemiah 2 and 3 today, we're going to see one of those priorities is a renewed love. Renewed love for people. The ability to risk. And the ability to work together to build God's kingdom. Now let's look at it together. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's hit a little rewind because we just started last week. We've all slept since then. Let's try to figure out what in the world uh, we're doing here. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah comes on the scene in about 445 BC. I know that was a very memorable year for all of us, and so that really means very little. But it was 13 years after Ezra had already come onto the scene, bringing a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, and it was almost 100 years since the first group of exiles were sent back to Jerusalem by King Cyrus of Persia. So Nehemiah is on the scene, and here's what we hear about. Here's what he hears, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. And when Nehemiah hears this, here's his immediate response. Nehemiah 1.4 As soon as I heard these words, I sat and I wept, and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why was this his response? Why was his response weeping and praying and fasting for days? What turns out to be probably four months. Why such a severe response? Because he was burdened. He was burdened by many things. Last week we talked about As we saw in his prayer in chapter 1, he was burdened by the sin of his people over many years. Sins that he didn't necessarily participate in, because it happened hundreds of years before, but sins that he owned and was grieved by because it happened in his people's history. But he was also burdened by his own sin. So when we think about what are the renewed priorities of the people of God as we join together in this new beginning together, one of them is confession and repentance. We must be about confession and repentance. We must talk about our sin and our need for a Savior. We must characterize our new beginnings together. But more than that, Nehemiah knew that because of his own sin, the sin of his people, the brokenness, That he was desperate for God. That's why you see him praying for months. His own sin, the sin of his people, the devastation that he heard about, it just showed him of his great need for God. Looking at our sin is not the point. Our sin and seeing it is meant to cause us to do a spring up to God because he's our only hope. As David Powlison says, change doesn't come by looking in the mirror. It's by seeing our sin and our need for Christ and going to the only one who can solve it. So what was also characterizing Nehemiah and meant to characterize the people of God, it was God-soakedness. Remember, I made up that word. God-soakedness. It's what must characterize us. God is the point. It was his need for God that drove him to pray. He was convinced that God was his only hope, his only answer, his greatest need. And he knew he must place himself under the torrential downpour of God's amazing grace. So as we said last week, what helped him see God was his confidence in the scriptures. 
He prayed. And what came out of that prayer was he was praying the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy. So what else characterizes the people of God in this new beginning? It is confidence in God's word. This is just a checklist, friends. Like, this is not about new fancy things. This is about how do we make the main things part of our individual and corporate lives? How do we make God's priorities our priorities? And it is confession and repentance. It's God being the center of everything, him being our main passion, and it is a confidence in his word. And that confidence in God's word fueled his confidence in God. And his confidence in God fueled his confidence in God's word. But friends, all of this was four months of a season characterized by prayer and fasting. And that's why Jesus says, my people are to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Prayer must be what characterizes us as a people. And that's why we say with the psalmist in his prayer, Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. The people of God rehearse the steadfast love of God for the glory of God. This is our prayer. That's what Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah 1.5, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah was so filled with the love of God and so convinced of God's love for him that he just began his most desperate moment with a prayer of praise for the faithfulness of God. This is the people of God. Dear friends, in the face of sin, in the face of struggle, in the face of dilemma, make no mistake, the response was prayer because that's what Christians do. Musicians play instrument and sing. Contractors, they build or manage buildings. Football players, they play football. Teachers, they teach. Christians, they pray. It's what we do. It's synonymous with our name. We love to be at the feet of Jesus, and we are desperate for him. It's not a religious duty that's a checking box. It is what we do. The beauty of Christianity is that God came near to us and we have been invited into a relationship with him. The God of the universe wants to communicate with us and has in his word and wants us to be at his feet just calling out to him, God, we need you, we need you, we need you. It's what Christians do. We talk to him. We talk to our father. I was walking in my neighborhood last night and as I was walking, it was pitch black and I turned the corner and I looked up and like sitting just on the top of the houses in my neighborhood was this massive moon, full moon, and it had an orange hue to it. The first thing I did, I pulled out my phone and I hit FaceTime Dana, it's my wife, and I FaceTimed her. Why? Because when you see great things, you want to share it. I tried to take pictures. That was lousy. I don't have a great nighttime camera. It just looked like a little spot out there. And it tried to take a picture so long, and it, the flash was going every time I moved, and it was just this zipping stuff on the, I mean, it was a train wreck. And I tried, I was like, Dana, look at this, look at this. She couldn't see it through my phone. But this is the point. This is what Christians do. They have beheld the great love of God that has changed them and they just want to share it. They want to share it with God and they want to share it with others. Prayer is the posture of the Christian's heart. Prayer is saying, I can do nothing without you. It's confidence that we have nothing to fear but God himself. Prayer communicates at its core, Father, make your name great through me. Do whatever with me you want to do with me. Prayer says, I want to follow you. And that's why Nehemiah, leading into chapter 2, this is what he says. Chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So probably what we have in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, a season of Extended prayer and fasting. And now, 
in the journal of General Nehemiah, we have probably the prayer on the day before he walks in to talk to the king. Because he says, Oh God, grant me success to your servant today and give mercy in the sight of this man, that is, King Artaxerxes. And so, the picture of months and months of prayer, we have to understand, that is a picture of not only a desperation for God and knowing you are loved by God, it was a picture of his burden of love for his people. And that's another characteristic that must characterize our new beginnings. It is being burdened by love, or as I've titled this point, loved ones love. That's what we do in our new beginning together. Loved ones who are so convinced of the love of God for us, we love. That's what we do. We love. And so, as we've heard this story, Nehemiah, all of his courage, we see that he was driven not only by love for God, but love for others. Now, there was a story of a man who had been enslaved in America during the Revolutionary War. His name was George Leal. George Leal had been enslaved and had come to faith in Jesus. And he had chosen that in this enslavement that he was just going to proclaim Jesus as much as he could. And people started coming to faith in Jesus. He got out of enslavement for a season and he started proclaiming Jesus and holding church services and people were coming to faith because his master had died in the Revolutionary War. But as we know from that horrible season of history, he was still viewed as property by someone. And so with all that dehumanizing worldview, they came after him. They came after him to enslave him again. And a British officer, somehow a relationship with George was developed, and a British officer rescued George Leal and sent him to the British-inhabited Jamaican Islands. And when I went to seminary, I was told that the first missionary was Adoniram Judson. But actually, the first missionary was George Leal, sent to Jamaica as a church planter. And George Leal, a former slave, goes to Jamaica and he begins to preach the gospel. And they say that over 500 people came to faith in Jesus, and churches were planted in Jamaica because of this man's conviction that the gospel was powerful, that he was loved by God no matter what else anybody else said about him. No matter all of the dehumanizing talk that he was not valuable, he knew what his God said, and he wanted that message to go wherever he went. And he proclaimed that message not only because of his love for God, but because of his love for people, and he was willing to risk his life to do so. Because there were times when he was tried for sedition, even as he was trying to plant this church in Jamaica, people out for his life, but because of love, he was willing to risk. Here's what we need to see. Nehemiah was burdened by love, and that's what led him to pray. And that love also led him into the very throne room with the king Artaxerxes to do a very risky thing. To do a very risky thing for the sake of Christ. And so, we need to remember, what are our priorities? I just list a bunch of them. But what Nehemiah teaches us afresh and anew in chapter 2 is that one of those other priorities is love. A burden of love for our neighbor. A burden of love for one another. And that that love includes risk. That's another characteristic that must characterize our new beginnings. Risk. Love and risk. Faithfulness includes risk. So now look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah at the very beginning. It says, in the month of Nisan. In the month of Nisan. That's 
March to April in our calendar, but it's four months after chapter one, which was the month of Kislev, November to December-ish. So four months after Nehemiah got word that the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem are in great trouble and shame, and it goes on to say that it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now Artaxerxes served as king from 464 to 423 B.C., It was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes that Ezra brought a group of exiles back. It was the second wave of exiles back into Jerusalem. And now it's in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when Nehemiah approaches the king. So 13 years after Ezra has led a group of people there. Now look what it says. The text goes on to say that when wine was before him. Now why is that important? Because Nehemiah was the cupbearer. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. You see the very last words of chapter 1 say, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, I don't know, it might not sound very prestigious. You know, what do you do for a living? I bear a cup. Well, it was because you, it was who you bore the cup for. You know, you say, I bear the cup for Sean, who cares? I bear the cup for the king. That's an important thing. Why? Because he had access to the king. He was in the king's presence regularly. This was a place and a position of prestige. And his role, his role was to just be generally positive and happy and bring wine to the king and just be a a positive attitude in the presence of the king, which is why... He got a little nervous when the king noticed he was sad. Look at what happens. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king, verse 1. Now I had not been sad in his presence. I kind of kept it together. But now he walks in after this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. He walks into the king's presence, pleading with God to grant success in this moment. And his face is downcast and the king notices. Verse 2. Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick, said the king? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then it says that Nehemiah was very much afraid. Some believe his fear was because his job was to lessen anxiety, and now he's adding to it possibly. Others believe that that fear was because this very king, talked about in in Ezra chapter 4, had already stopped work on Jerusalem's walls. So a group of opposition leaders came, said this city is a danger to your kingdom, O king. They should stop building the walls. And this very king says, stop building the walls immediately. So now Nehemiah is in his presence asking the very thing that the king had said stop earlier. So whether it was he's supposed to make the king happy and he was sad, or whether it was Fear over this edict, this is where we are. He's in fear because the king noticed he was sad. And now listen to what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 3. I said to the king, this is respect, honor, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, so what are you requesting? And these next words, so I prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven. This first season of prayer, four months. This prayer right here, probably four seconds. And it was more than likely not out loud, in the heart, but it was these words of desperation. It was these words, this moment of Father. Give me strength. Get glory for your name. Help me now. It's just like four seconds in his heart, in his brain, and then he goes at it. Nehemiah 2.5. And so I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in, my sight, in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Why did he stop and pray? Because he knew he was supposed to do something. But there was fear 
over whether he should do it or not. And friends, there's going to be many times and there have been many times when we as followers of Jesus have known what we should do and yet out of fear we've shrunk back. And what we must learn is that faithfulness to God includes risk. It includes it. We as the people of God will be asked to take what we think are risks, but to God they aren't risks. Because our God is in control. And so the question is, is our yes on the table? Are we Christians when it's comfortable? But when it demands something of us, it's easy to shrink back. Nehemiah's example here is, God, I know I must walk forward in love. Give me help. What might risk look like for us as a people? It could be giving time that you don't want to give. It could be standing up for Christ and for what is right in conversations where people might look at you differently after that conversation. It's a risk financially. It's generosity to the church and to the vulnerable and to the hurting and for the cause of the gospel going to the nations. It's a risk of generosity. For many of you trying to think about your career as college students or grad students or whatnot, when you're trying to think high school students coming out of high school, you're thinking about your career, what should I do? It's thinking about it through the lenses of, God, what do you want me to do? I was reading uh, this one email I got about a gap year that is held by uh, David Platt's church in Washington, D.C., and he says, that they want them to ask these three questions. Are you preparing for a lifetime of following Jesus? Like, do you ask yourself that question as you start college? Are you preparing for a lifetime of following Jesus? Are you specializing in fields that are in demand, not only here in America, but globally, so that if God calls you, you're ready? Are you developing your missionary skills? was the third question. Are you developing skills to reach your neighbor with the gospel, to reach your friends with the gospel, those that you exercise with or hang out with, whatever? Are you developing missionary skills? Like this is what it means to be a people who reorient their thinking, a thinking that might mean risk. It means that we as a church have to get a little bit more gritty Think about what it means to step sometimes into the difficulty rather than avoid it. Here's something that's on the table for many of us. And that is as, quote, possible normalcy comes in the midst of COVID, we're going to be forced to ask ourselves, when can we gather again? When will some of you who are at home, when do you feel comfortable to gather again? And it's going to be a risk. I just want to let you know, this is how life works. If you're waiting for 0% chance, it's not going to happen. There's never going to be a 0% chance. There's never going to not be a variant. There'll always be variants. It's just how life works. It's just, there's sickness in the world. What we've got to do is make sure that we prioritize what God says. And I can just tell you from personal experience, when I began to worship with the people of God corporately, it did something to me. The things that God said would happen, there was, there was a uniqueness, there was an encouragement of just seeing the people of God. Even small talk encouraged me. Thing that like used to get on your nerves, it was like, no, this is... This is good. I'm like, I know what's going on in people's lives and I'm encouraged. I'm built up in, in the faith. Like, and so I just encourage you. That this is, it's just a season. I don't know if it's March. I don't know if it's April. I don't know if it's May for you, but it's just a season and we got to think this way. We've got to prioritize the gathering of God's people. And finally, what might risk look like? We have been ingrained. For over a year. You want to develop a habit? Make it happen for over a year. We have been ingrained that people are objects to be avoided because of sickness rather than individuals, hearts, and souls that need to be engaged with the gospel. 
We've got to look at our neighbors differently. Even if it's from six feet away with a mask on, I don't care. We've got to look at them differently. As people who need Christ, I've been so encouraged by the love and the testimonies of love in our church and by the willingness to risk in our church. One couple in our church had just been loving on neighbors for three, four, five years, and it was in the midst of a major crisis in their life. You know what they did? They came to the next door neighbor in the midst of a potential abuse situation, members of our church, and said, can you help me? Faithfulness over time to engage. We've just got to look at things differently. And yes, it'll mean some risk. Use wisdom, but also walk in faith. Friends, I was burdened personally to just develop my prayer life when it came to praying for lost people. And so I just began praying the word lost. And every letter encouraging my heart with some aspect that I need to grow in, in praying for the lost. And so L was, God, just make love abound more and more. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9. Make love abound more and more. Because I know what it's like to choose myself and say it's easier not to talk to them or to stay away. Especially in a season when everybody's more comfortable staying inside. I get it. So what has to happen is, oh God, make love abound more and more in my heart. Oh I pray Colossians chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. God, would you give me opportunities? Would you open wide a door to speak of Christ? There was an individual in our church who has just been burdened for his co-workers and he's been speaking the gospel to his co-workers and now him and two other brothers in our church are going to be doing a bible study together with these individuals in this season i'm so encouraged by these testimonies god open a door and help us give us courage to walk through the s luke 19 jesus came to seek and to save the lost and this is where i just pray that god would save blank Save this person by name. Save this person by name. Save this person by name. Because love prays. Christians pray. And then the last one is T. And it's just this general sense that I would trust Christ with the result. That I would trust Christ with the result. I would trust him to give me the opportunity. I would trust him that with my meager, stumbling over my tongue kind of words, that he would use his gospel to change life. That I would trust Christ with the result. So maybe this will encourage you. God, may we pray for the lost. May our love abound. Would you open wide a door? Would you save these people? And may we trust you to build your church through conversions. Millions, not an overstatement, millions of lost people in our city. And so, if we embark on a new beginning together, it must be characterized by love, because loved ones love, and it must be characterized by risk. But finally, it must be characterized by building for God together. Now that one's going to seem a little awkward and like, Okay, that doesn't make a ton of sense. I'll get there, okay? So, here's what happens in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah now has risked. He has approached the king, and he asked the king for the moon. He's like, okay, if I'm going to go, would you please grant me the paperwork I need so that these other provinces that I pass through, they won't stop me, but they'll have to give me permission all the way, to get all the way to Jerusalem. King says, yeah. Sends guards with him to protect him, and then Nehemiah keeps asking, you have not because you ask not, right? He keeps asking, could you also give me timber, lumber, so that we could help rebuild the gates and the walls? It's just like, are you not pushing it, buddy? And the king says, yes, I'll give it to you. So everything that he needed, he has all these things, takes this great risk, and now he goes. And he goes to uh, Jerusalem, and here's the summary. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. Here's the summary 
of all of that asking as he begins his journey. And it says at the end of verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. Why did Nehemiah say that? Why did Nehemiah say that God's good hand was on him? Because in chapter 1 verse 8, even though he was going to face opposition, he, Nehemiah was able to see God's hand upon him. Chapter 1 verse 8, he saw God's hand as a redeeming hand. A hand that would fulfill his promises to not leave his people in exile, but to redeem them. God's hand was upon him. Chapter 2, verse 8, that the king granted wood for the gates and for the wall. Chapter 2, verse 9, that he was granted passage through unfriendly provinces. All of this was so that he could highlight, this is not just an accident. This is God's hand at work. And I just want you to, I encourage you to write it down. Write it down and consider that as an individual or as a house, as a community group, or we as a church, that we ask God to give us eyes to see his saving and restoring work. Just picture it. Like you're sitting around the dinner table. Where have you seen God at work this week? You're in community group and you just ask the question, where have you seen God at work in your life? Where have you seen God's restoring work in your life? Or this week, where have you seen God at work? Nehemiah was only able to lead forward. And the people of God only had the confidence to join in with this whole mission because Nehemiah saw God's hand at work. He didn't just call these things normal. He says, this is from the hand of God. And we need new lenses. We need eyes that see that's God's work right there. So just practice with me. Your presence here is God's work. No, it's my work. I got out of bed. I set my alarm. I got here. No, God has you here. Where you live currently and the people around where you live is God's work. It says in Acts 17, he set your boundaries. We want to say, no, that's me. He wants to say, no, that's him. That's me. God tells us that he is at work all the time. The food that you'll eat after this service, provision from his hand. The fact that you're a Christian at all, if you have trusted in him, provision from his hand. Yesterday's beauty, provision from his hand. Today's rain, provision from his hand. Dear friends, we have got to begin to fight together to see things as Nehemiah saw it. And so let's pick up the story. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, and now for three days he's in Jerusalem, kind of gathering debris intel. <laughs> it's like, okay, this, is, this place is a train wreck. And so he's looking all over for three days. And he said that, I told no one, when he shows up, he told no one what God, this is verse 11, I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And so he inspects the walls. He sizes up the tasks. He looks at how broken everything was. That's chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. And then he says, looking at the people gathered around him, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he makes his pitch. Come. Come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. This word derision is the same word in chapter 1 for the word shame. This is like a cloud over the city. As he's walking around, he sees the shame. It's a cloud of shame. And so he says, let's build this wall together. Let's not give up. Let's do this together. And then Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18. And he told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And so the people were encouraged. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now this point that I said must characterize us is building 
for God together. <laughs> Here's why. This will be the shortest run through a chapter in the Bible you've ever seen. Nehemiah chapter 3 goes like this. Here's just a sampling of what you read in Nehemiah chapter 3. This is going to bless you. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Amen. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And this goes on for 32 verses. Why? Couldn't he just be like, and they built together the wall? Like, it's a short chapter, right? Like, why? Why go on over and over and over? Why does it just keep saying this over and over? It's the reason Leviticus is in your Bible. Why list out over 600 laws? If you've ever read through Leviticus, you're tired by a few chapters in, and you're just reading and reading and reading. Why? Because you are meant to be exhausted by the law. And you are meant to be convinced by the fact that you and the people of Israel will never be able to do all of that perfectly. You're convinced by the end of Leviticus that your only hope is a Messiah to die in your place. Why is this here? This is here for the same reason. It's here for the same reason. To communicate the whole people of God were convinced in the promises of God and that together they must be on the mission of God for the glory of God. That's what that is about. It is not just building a wall in some building program in a church. It is about communicating the togetherness that we must have for the mission of God, for the glory of God. And it's meant to be driven in over and over and next to them and next to them and next to them and next to them. So that when you hear calls, calls of like, okay, we need some help with sound team. We need some help with the visual team. We need some help with greeting or we need some help up here on Sunday morning. You're not thinking, do I want to really do X task? You're thinking, I'm a piece of a puzzle that fits next to another piece of the puzzle that fits next to another piece of the puzzle because the people of God together are on the mission of God for the glory of God. That's what I'm thinking. Nothing's too small. I'm not after greatness. I'm after being with the people of God, next to the people of God, for the mission of God, for the glory of God. Does this make sense? This is why what must characterize as a people is that we are building for God. That means for His glory, not because He needs us, but for His glory together. Together. That's why he says, and next to them, and next to them. You know how they chose who built portions of the wall? They just went outside their house. This group went outside their house and they built this side. And this group went outside their house and they built this side. And then they took other people to fill in the gaps where there were gaps in the wall. This is how we think about doing life together as a church. How do I love my neighbors? How do I love those who are around me? Where are the gaps in accomplishing the mission of God for the glory of God? And how can I be used for that? You are not meant to do everything. You're just meant to be a people of love that takes risks and builds for the glory of God together. Here's the image that I was given, and I'm done. You know, we're going to potentially relocate, and that more than likely will mean looking at either an old building that's crumbling and trying to fix it, or looking at a piece of land that then needs to be graded and we build. Why? Why would we build a building? Why would we rehab a building? It's not for the building. It's not about the walls. It's not about the carpet. It's not about the rooms. It's about being the people of God for the mission of God, for the glory of God. Here's how tempting and yet how crazy it could be. You're a family, and you're looking at getting a new house. 
Let's just say you go and you're looking at this house and you start talking about all the things you want in this new house, all the things you want around you, but here's what happens. In this pursuit of looking at this house, you stop being a family. You stop loving each other. Parents stop feeding the kids. Kids say, I want to rule this house and so I'm going to be in charge. Married couples, they start, stop serving and listening to each other. Everybody just stops being the family. But boy, you got a house. Who cares? Who cares? The house is only for a tool so that the family can be the family. It's a tool of protection. It's a tool so that people can seek the face of God. It's a tool for hospitality. It's a tool. And no matter what God has for us in the future, and God only knows what it is, and I do not, this I know. We must be about His priorities. Confession and repentance. Confidence in His Word. Soaked in treasuring Christ above all. A people of prayer. A people who love because we've been loved. A people who risk. And a people who together, linking arms, are about His mission for His glory. And if we do that, He's going to take care of the rest. May we never allow the house to dictate what God has already said the people of God should be about. Friends, this is about new beginnings together. And may we have these renewed priorities together for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, I do ask, I do ask that you would help us to love you, follow you, worship you, enjoy you together. And I pray that what would happen in this moment would be the assessment of our lives. Asking not only what's my life to be about, but how does my life fit in with this church body? How can I serve others, even from a distance? How can I encourage via text? How can I love my neighbor, even when I might not should get near them right now? We must begin to ask these questions. And Father, we just need your help. Father, I think my, my deepest fear is that we would leave here thinking more about what to do than what you have already done for us. We would think about more of our responsibility than of your great love that is steadfast and sure. So Father, please, do what only you can do. Remind us of the gospel today, that we are here because of your initiation. You loved us when we did not love you. You came to us when we were running away from you. You came into our lives by faith alone, not because we were good enough or valuable enough. So Father, I just ask for the gospel to penetrate our hearts so that any effort to love our neighbor as ourself only grows out of the soil of a face at the feet of Jesus, loving a God who first loved us. Oh, Father, please help us. Help us. Right now, friends, let's just spend just a few minutes, one minute in prayer, just asking God to do a work. He's exposing something in your life, friends. He's stirring and doing something in your life. His Spirit is at work in this church, and I'm confident of that, and He's at work right now. Ask Him. Ask Him to show you things in your life and encourage you. Ask you. Ask Him to give you more of Himself. Let's pray and then we'll sing together.